It happens roughly every 3,000 days, always during a harvest moon. It has come to be called the plague of wicked thoughts. I say roughly, and usually science is more precise, but not in this case, which only serve to bolster the claims of fringe theorists that this phenomena was not scientific in origin, that it was supernatural or otherworldly, bleed through from somewhere else. Every crackpot had a wildly different theory, but the one thing that they all agreed upon was that it was real. Every eight years or so, the town of Silver Hollow and the surrounding forests deep in the heart of the Salmon Chalice suffered from a nightmarish assault of violence and inexplicable visions. This went back for decades, before the town had even been settled. Local native tribes had always given the place a wide berth, which is precisely why it was settled by the whites. They thought it provided them with sanctuary. The first time the plague happened, there was a a great confusion afterwards and the natives were actually scapegoated for the event. Townsfolk believed that it must be accursed native magics at fault. Years later, it happened again. The same bizarre calamity, a night where everyone in the vicinity seemingly went insane. Hallucinations, visions, angel sightings, alien encounters... All of these things and more were reported. So were assaults, rapes, kidnappings, murders, self-mutilation, cannibalism, an orgy of sadistic violence and ruthless aggression that came out of nowhere. And just for the one night. Then things went back to the same as always. It was about to happen again. Within the next week or so, Silver Hollow would plunge into madness once again. Kevin Koja knew that this might be his only chance to experience it firsthand, so that he could solve the riddle that had confounded the DRO for years. He would be the explorer who walked boldly into the heart and stared into the soul of the plague of wicked thoughts. Drinking whiskey in the kitchen and telling scary stories around the fire. Music, monsters, and mayhem. Killers, cannibals, and cults. Fearful fiction and furious fact. Tall tales and terrifying truths. This is A Scary Home companion. Director Bill Handel answered Kevin's call, but was not at all pleased about it. Kevin, 
I will ask you one last time to send someone else on this project, he said by way of greeting. You are too valuable to take such risks and tilt at windmills. Bill, I appreciate your concern, but you know how much this has fascinated me. I have a very brief window of opportunity, and based on some astronomical predictions of star alignment, I think I may have narrowed it down to a single night. So, I'll be out of the office for less than 48 hours. Unless you're eaten by the townsfolk. Bill, I don't think they can show me worse than I've already seen. Kevin flashed back briefly to the encounter in the morgue with Nick Braithwaite, and how close he had come to... Well, never mind. Besides, you and I both feel that the DRO hasn't been a force for good, but that it could be. And this is why I need to go. Maybe what we learn can save lives in the future. At least let me send a security detail with you, Kevin. That just adds more variables to the equation. No, it should be just me. I can set up the equipment, secure it, and fall back to make sure it can take all the necessary readings. I've detailed my fail-safe measures. So, with that in mind, would you read those lines that I sent you? You just want me to read them aloud? I'm recording this conversation to play back later. I need something to keep me laser-focused to the exclusion of all else. I understand, Bill said. That makes sense. Thank you, sir. Okay. Special Agent Koja. Kevin, remember why you are here. Focus on the mission. Do not deviate. You must ensure the success of the project. The equipment will record and document all relevant data. Protecting it, and yourself, is your only priority. Do not fail me. That was perfect, sir. And the security detail? They should come no closer than Elk City. Why put our own men at risk? You've earned a degree of autonomy, so I'm allowing this. But make it quick, Kevin, and come back in one piece. Bill hung up. Sixteen hours later, Kevin Koja was climbing behind the wheel of a heavily armored DRO research van in a hangar off a private airstrip. He still had to drive three hours into the dark heart of the Salmon Chalice Forest. DRO policy maintained that no agent was allowed to drive through that area at night. So Kevin needed to make good time. If his predictive models were accurate, tonight would be the night of the plague. And he was feeling confident. He had gotten the blessing of his mentor and friend. He had also gotten the blessing of his therapist, who said Kevin had been making great strides as of late. Koja had always been more of a follower than a leader, 
But this time, it was feeling pretty good to take control of a project and do it his way. With some time to kill on the drive, he ran through his mental setup checklist so that he could hit the ground running. For background noise, he put on an old lecture from Professor Andre Argento. Although he was not as expert on the Silver Hollow case as he was other areas, Argento had written a couple of very famous papers about the phenomenon. Like most scholars, Argento never went anywhere near the town itself, basing all of his theories on data collected by other, braver researchers. As with most of his lectures, Argento spent most of the time smoking weed and discussing the nature of the dreamscape and its denizens. He finally got to the meat of it. The crux of his theory on Silver Hollow was this. When we dream, or have nightmares... It's because we venture somewhere outside of ourselves. Our wandering spirits go somewhere else. A dreamscape parallel to our world. But, he posits, what if we weren't talking about us? What if we weren't talking about humanity on Earth? If there are other realities or planes of existence... Where do the wandering spirits of those creatures go? What if their nightmares somehow came here, to Silver Hollow? Koji had listened to this lecture before and had devoted some time to considering the theory. He tried to remain open to all possibilities, so that he didn't prejudice his objectivity. But the Argento argument carried very little water. From others, there had been speculation that ergot fungus was involved, but no trace of it had ever been found in years' worth of samples taken from the area. Fringe science theorists added the wrinkle of possible profane botany in the area, vegetation and flora that could potentially release spores on a long-term timetable, which might account for both the brevity and the severe intensity of the plague events. Once again, Kevin stayed open to every possibility, even if he didn't buy into them. He'd been leaning more towards something extraterrestrial. His personal theory had started to develop two years ago, when he was researching the history of a small town called Kipo Flats. There had been rumors of phantom radio broadcasts on old frequencies, and of a long-dead snake preacher who continued to call out and guide his flock. The research had been fascinating, the results inconclusive. But they did serve to send Kevin down a rabbit hole that led to him discovering the plague of wicked thoughts and the horrors of Silver Hollow. Ham radio operators proved to be a fount of knowledge, Kevin devoted himself to learning as much about the system as possible, and because he had studied so many disparate theories, his mind was able to combine them in new and interesting ways. Although he didn't like the idea of dreams bleeding through from another place, frequencies, on the other hand, that was another matter entirely. 
Certain frequencies only open up in and around solar flares. Given the right astronomical conditions, who knows what kind of transmissions we might receive if we know where or how to look for them. And that's really why he was here. Kevin spread the word to the other ham operators that he'd been chatting with. They were collectively encouraging everyone from Silver Hollow to go to Elk City for a few days. Some of the hams even started to go fund me to help people move. So Kevin was somewhat candid with them about his intent to be in town for the night of the plague, although none of them were aware of his status as a DRO special agent. They just thought he was another ham. As Kevin drove through the sleepy small town, he was pleased to see it largely empty. His equipment was to study atmospheric conditions, air quality, the magnetic spectrum, as well as having a full antenna array for all known frequencies and bandwidth. It would make things a lot easier if nobody else was present, because the effects on the populace were already very well documented. Kevin didn't need any more data from that perspective. Tonight was all about the science. He parked atop a small ridge just outside of town, giving him a great panoramic view of the immediate area, as well as an easily defensible high ground. He unhitched the small trailer, then moved the van a hundred yards off. The trailer contained a high-power antenna array. By the time he finished setting it up, the sun was almost completely set. He opened the rear doors of the van and started turning on and adjusting the rest of the equipment. He was fully on autopilot at this point, keeping one eye on the sun as it kept dropping lower and lower until it was just the tiniest orange sliver clinging onto the horizon by its fingernails. Okay, I think we're ready, he said to himself. He got out of the van, shut all the doors, and locked it down. He had everything he needed on his person. Gun, notepad, phone, earpiece, smart watch to record his vital signs. And, of course, the B-52 in his breast pocket. The B-52 was an EpiPen loaded with a highly potent cocktail of Benadryl, Haldol, and Ativan that would induce unconsciousness within seconds. If he felt himself slipping into madness, it would only take a heartbeat to safely and effectively shut himself down. Kevin Koja stood at the top of the ridge and looked out across Silver Hollow. There were only a handful of lights and very little noise. Whoever stayed behind was quiet thus far. The harvest moon seemed dull. It was fire orange, but more like an ember than a dancing flame. It hung low in the sky, too heavy to climb much higher. He lowered his gaze and studied the tree line around him, below him, behind him, where he caught the dingy marigold reflection of a pale white face between the trees. It ducked away quickly, so quickly 
Kevin wasn't sure that he had seen it at all. Until another face flashed, came and went. His eyes adjusted to the amber-tinged gloom, and he picked them out. Four figures in total, wearing raggedy cloaks and baggy hoods. Were they watching him because he was an outsider? Were they here to destroy his equipment and protect their secret? Or perhaps they weren't really here at all. When Kevin looked up, the harvest moon had rolled back into its socket, revealing an eclipse. Deep black ringed with flaming orange dotted with a pupil and iris that looked down on him and saw him. Special Agent Koja. Kevin, remember why you are here. Focus on the mission. Do not deviate. You must ensure the success of the project. The equipment will record and document all relevant data. Protecting it and yourself is your only priority. Do not fail me. When any of his brain waves or vital signs hit certain benchmarks, the earpiece would replay Bill's message. Kevin was a devoted soldier, a loyal agent. He also had personal feelings for Bill, ones that he was still sorting out with his therapist, which is precisely why Kevin had needed Bill's voice for this mission. He knew it was the only voice that he would always respond to. Above all else, Kevin could not bear to let down his mentor. Kevin waited for his pulse to settle. When he opened his eyes, there were no cloaked figures in the trees. The moon was the moon again. The Dokabi were gone, at least for now. Which was all that mattered. Wait, what? Where did... Where did that thought come from? The Dokabi were folklore, children's stories as mother had told him when he was a little boy. They had nothing to do with this. He made a note of the time and the strange thought so that he could expound upon it later. He had to keep himself removed. He had to not inject his own thoughts and feelings into the proceedings in any way. The moon was still the moon. The town was still stretched out below him. Some of the few lights had gone dark. One of them had blossomed into an elegant, hungry flower that was eating the house. Kevin made a note of how pretty it looked. He saw little dark figures dancing around the fire. They were howling, but then the noise twisted and went staticky changed into a, a bug-like clicking. Was that Morse code? Or was it a Geiger counter? He made another note. He saw that the page was filled with words, but he couldn't read any of them. 
He flipped through all the pages of the little spiral-bound notebook, but each one was filled with scribbles and diagrams, uh, covered with little hieroglyphs and things he knew were supposed to be numbers, even though he didn't recognize them. And then, for no reason at all, he thought of sweet Madeline, his first and only love. <sighs> Special Agent Koja, Kevin, remember why you are here. Focus on the mission. Do not deviate. You must ensure the success of the project. The equipment will record and document all prevalent data. Protecting it and yourself is your only priority. Do not fail me. No. No. He'd done it again. He had put his own thoughts into play. He was here to observe, protect, and report. Any personal feelings that came up were irrelevant tonight. Besides, Madeline was in the rearview mirror of his life. That he clung to a glorified memory of her was his own shortcoming. It had nothing to do with her or with this project. He was in the middle of something so much bigger than himself. He had to remain objective. Also, he was sure that that was not the voice of Bill Handel he had just heard. Was it an oral hallucination from the plague? Or had the Dokabi gotten into his tech? Kevin prowled the perimeter. Again, he thought he heard the soft clicking tones of bugs talking to one another. Once again, he dismissed it. There were no more cloaked figures studying him. Of this, he was quite sure. Since his notebook was full of gibberish, he buried it. He walked down the other side of the ridge and buried his keys, just so no one could steal them from him. Finally, he was thinking clearly. He had to protect the project from himself as well as everyone else. He still had the B-52 and the gun, so he was in good shape. There was nothing to worry about. Why had he been so concerned? It seemed silly now. He sat down, looking to where the town used to be. The houses had all sunken into the red mud and clay, slowly being eaten by the earth. The trees hunched around the buildings, stooping over, helping to push them down faster. They were tendrils, not trees. He felt like a fool for not seeing it before. The world needed to eat. Why else did life exist but to be devoured by higher life forms? The food chain on a local and cosmic level. An infinite Ouroboros in which he could only see the tiniest fraction of it. Which is exactly the sort of thing the Dokabai would want him to think. Aha! He rubbed his face and blinked his eyes and watched the town of Silver Hollow come back into view. 
There were a few more fires now, and a lot more screaming. But the town was there, as it always had been. He was obviously feeling the effects of the plague of wicked thoughts, and staying objective, removing his own personal feelings from the equation. He could clearly see how the Dokabai were manipulating things to confuse him. They were tricksters, these goblins from the Korean peninsula. They could be evil, but more often they were simply mischievous. So the only question was, what kind were these here tonight? Were they the kind his mother told him about, that sought to test and tease humans and find out what they were made of? Or were they the other kind of Dokabai, the dark and twisted kind, who wanted to punish and inflict misfortune? Based on the history of the town, the answer seemed obvious. Perhaps Madeleine would know. Kevin took out his phone and looked for her number. But it was full of gel-acid-spewing fire ants that ate every character as fast as he could type it. They crawled out through his keypad and tried to burrow into his fingertips, so he dropped the phone and then buried it. Then he took out his earpieces. The ants could be inside them, too, and they could crawl all the way into his brain. That wouldn't do. That wouldn't do at all. So he buried the earpieces next to the phone, and he would retrieve them once things were safe. Once the moon had stopped staring at him so accusingly, he heard an old, familiar voice. He swatted his ears to make sure that they were empty, and then he saw her, full nude, standing on top of the antenna array. Madeline. Special Agent Koja. Kevin, remember why you're here. Focus on the mission. Do not deviate. You must ensure the success of the project. The equipment will record and document all relevant data. Protecting it and yourself is your only priority. Do not fail me. Kevin found a broken tree branch and used it to etch words into the stiff ground. A message to himself. Madeleine is not here. But when he read it back, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't in English or any other language he'd seen before. But he knew that it said something different than what he had written. Although Kevin had managed to stay pretty well removed from the plague thus far, it was obviously still affecting him a little. These things that didn't make sense meant that they weren't real. Bill's voice didn't sound like Bill anymore. Plus, he'd gotten rid of the earpiece and could still hear it. So that couldn't be real either. Thankfully, he was cogent enough to recognize the signs, which meant the Dokobai had not yet won. Remember why? 
Kevin still had a chance to outlast them, to beat them, to outsmart them, to free Silver Hollow from their savage influence. Most of these goblins were harmless enough, like gnomes or coyotes. They just sought to mix things up and keep everyone on their toes. But some of the Dokabai were twisted and foul. And that is obviously what was happening here. The plague of wicked thoughts was but a game to them. One revisited at a time on their ancient and unknowable calendar. But they had underestimated Special, Special Agent, Agent Kevin Koja. The stories his mother told him, they fortified him, they informed him. They weaponized him against the power of the Dokabai. He buried his gun, knowing that it would be powerless against a goblin. Instead, he brought the sharpened branch with him. He stripped naked, rolling in the dirt, and slithered through the darkened tree line on his belly. Do not fail me. That wasn't real. That wasn't Bill. That was the plague, trying to distract him from the real work, finding these meddlesome goblins before they could destroy the equipment and ruin the data. Tonight was the key to making his name, not just as Bill Handel's pet or his chief of staff, but as an agent renowned for his work. These fucking Dokabai would not stand in his way. He saw two of them talking, their cloaks whipped in the wind, obscuring their guttural clicks and hisses. They were far from human, even though he couldn't see their monstrous faces. Kevin crawled up close enough to leap and attack them with his stick. He knocked one to the ground before plunging the wooden stake into the face of the other. The fallen goblin thrashed and cursed him in its alien tongue. Kevin sat on its lumpy, throbbing thorax and choked it until it was still. They could no longer hide behind his feelings for Bill or Madeline. Kevin was locked in on them. He fell back, taking deep cover under leaves and branches warm in the blood on his bare skin, and he waited for the others. Instinctively, he knew that they would come for their fallen comrades. He snapped the branch in two, so that he had two wooden stakes and then he tried to control his breath. His pulse was whisper-quiet, his blood pressure so calm and cool that he could barely see the veins in his arms pulsing anymore. Kevin Koja was firmly in control. He didn't need a voice in his ear to keep him focused. Protecting the equipment and himself was his only priority. And he would not fail. The other two Dokabai appeared. 
they were bereft at the sight of their fallen comrades. One of them took a spell book from its cloak, seeking to call for aid from the Dark Lord, but Kevin did not give it the chance. He attacked, stabbing with fierce precision and brutal accuracy, using a natural wooden spike to return the goblins to the earth. Thinking quickly, he buried the blood-soaked wooden stakes before they could sprout legs and crawl away. He would also need to bury the dead creatures, but that was going to have to wait until morning. He needed to get back to the top of the ridge to make sure the project was still on track. Everything was lit up tangerine orange and mordrum red. The moon was not a moon, but he saw that it was not an eye either. It was just a curious coloration on the back of a seven-legged spider-fly, mewling and wiggling and buzzing while stuck in the dimensional bleed like a bug in amber. He found the equipment perfectly safe and unharmed. A huge relief. Except, hmm, what if the Dokabai were not evil? This was not common among their kind. It was far more likely that they were here because the equipment was the source of the trouble. These beings rarely wish to inflict suffering and misery, so what if Kevin had been wrong about them all along? Which made him look at the antenna array through new eyes. If this was a beacon, then even collecting the information could lead to a deeper and more cancerous contamination of our world. He couldn't destroy it, could he? Special Agent Kevin! Kevin! No! No! He had to stay focused. He had to protect the mission and himself. And at this point, there was only one way to do that. Kevin ran to the tree line following the smell of blood in the air, and he found his clothes. He put on his socks and his underwear and fished the B-52 from his dirty pocket. The only thing he could do to protect himself from himself. He injected his arm, and moments later, the moon tucked in its legs and closed its mighty eye. All went dark, and his troubles gently floated away. Kevin awoke to the raging screams of the rising sun as it clawed its way back into the sky. He cradled his head in his hands and tried to get his bearings. There was still the faintest buzz of static behind his eyes. He got up and looked around the area. The van and the antenna array were still both completely unharmed. The town below looked a little worse for wear, but none of the fires had spread, 
and the gunshots and groans of last night had been replaced with the sounds of tools and tears. He retraced his steps to try and locate his keys, his notebook, and his phone. The phone was the easiest to find. It hadn't been buried deep, and it was ringing non-stop until he unearthed it. It was Bill. I was almost worried for a moment, Kevin, Bill said. I hope your operation was a success. I have yet to look at the data, but everything seemed to run smoothly, except for... He thought of the Dokabai. Perhaps instead of burying them, he should bring them back to the company for autopsy, to find out what made them tick. Never mind. I assume that you're coming back to work immediately. Yes, sir. Good. Kevin, I don't want you to think that I didn't trust you. But as I said, you're too valuable for me to lose. So I did have a four-agent security detail ghost you from the airstrip. I hope that they didn't interfere with your work in any way. Kevin walked over the ridge into the tree line, and found the bodies of the four DRO agents. Oh, cripes, Bill. I wish you wouldn't have done that. Thank you for listening to another episode of A Scary Home Companion. Find the show on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and Reddit. Or contact us directly at a scaryhomecompanion at gmail.com. Better still, sign up for the Patreon, where you get early access to episodes and a new full-length bonus story every month. And they're not throwaways. You're missing out on major character development and plot twists with these episodes. 30 and counting. It starts at five bucks a month. Check it out. And when you sign up, I'll mail you a free copy of the book Bedtime Stories for Weird Kids, which is available on Amazon. Support independent horror. Help me quit my day job. For the love of God, help me quit my day job. This episode is rife with connections to other stories and characters, but you know what? I'm not going to list them here as I usually do. Instead, I ask you to check out the post-mortem video I have posted where I break it all down, a complete analysis of the episode and all the references, the obvious ones and maybe some not-so-obvious ones. This will be a free video for everyone on the Patreon. You don't have to be a member. It's open to the public. And I'm doing this to give you guys an idea of how fucking rad the Patreon is. Patreon backslash a scary home companion. Musically, the only song you heard this week came from Beat Mechanic, one of our new favorites. Everything else was ham radio static and distortions cold from the ether, as well as a couple of guest voices from my wife, Jamie Lee Hensley, and my youngest daughter, 
Evangeline.